John T. Claypole is a former director of arts at the BBC and has had a very successful career as a documentary maker. He's also a lifelong stutterer. Now, as a kid, he spent 15 years in and out of speech therapy, dealing with bullying and even becoming a subject of his own mum's feature articles. But when he'd learned that his stutter was incurable, he not only started to make peace with it, he discovered that he was a part of a cohort of creatives whose so-called impediment had been a driver for self-expression. His book is Words Fail Us, a defence of disfluency, and he joins us in our Sydney studio to tell us all about it. Welcome, Jonty. Your book starts by talking about the uh, the stammering King George VI and his address to the nation in 1939 when England declared war on Germany. And as we know in the film The King's Speech, it was presented as a triumph, but the reality was somewhat different, wasn't it? George never... Um overcame his his stutter and obviously that doesn't work in a hollywood um film f- format context um he 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 never overcame it um the uh, and uh, the public found it deeply problematic and uncomfortable and so as you say the speech announcing the declaration of war in uh, in in the film um uh, w- 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 we're presented with a George who later comes to kind of triumph more over his stutter. But but in fact, even at the end of the war, when he gave the speech announcing the end of the war, he he stuttered terribly. And there are uh, diary accounts and people in pubs talking about the agony of hearing hearing George trying to give this speech. Well, Harold Nicholson Nicholson was uh, not at all diplomatic when he wrote, it is agonising to listen to him like a typewriter that sticks at every third word. Now, stuttering is something that makes people feel uncomfortable, especially in a leader, I guess. It's even seen as a sign of both physiological and psychological dysfunction and therefore weakness. Yeah, um, uh, indeed. And the reason why I begin the book on George's stutter is that the more I thought about it... um, it became less important to me whether or not he overcame his stutter. The question that really started to stick out to me was, why did it matter? Why did it matter so much to to um, the British public that they had a king who stuttered? And there, there was a symbolic importance attached to it, an idea that a king who stuttered was um, a bad omen, that, that, that how can a country who has a king that stutters successfully take on the Nazis and um, win the war? And by looking at that question, why does it matter to people? You really open up a can of worms about the ways in which stuttering um, uh, breaks fluency, the way it breaks our expectations on how language should be used. And for some reason, we put a lot lot of stake in that. Well, we're going to thoroughly investigate that can of worms. I hadn't realised that uh, Joe Biden was, to some extent, afflicted. Yeah, um, Joe Biden had a very bad stutter as a kid, um, and he talked about it 
uh, on a number of occasions drew, during his campaign. He fitted it into a presidential narrative as something he overcame. So it was something he had as a youngster and overcame. In fact, he's never overcome it. And he um, he is what we call an interiorized stutterer, um, which is what I am sort of largely these days. Uh, so if you look at his speech, those kind of classic Biden gaffes, they're called, where he appears to forget a name or lose the thread of what he's saying. Generally, when you analyse it, he's actually stuttering on a word but doesn't want to admit it. And Trump, of course, did his best to focus on those nanoseconds. He did. You started stuttering as a kid and had developed developmental delays in speaking at all. And this seems to be a phenomenon more common in boys than girls. Why? Yeah, it's it's not known. So there are many, many enigmas about stuttering. It's one of the most um, enigmatic neurological conditions there is for a whole bunch of uh, in, in a whole bunch of ways. There's the fact that there are many people who stutter profusely in everyday speech who become completely fluent if they're acting or broadcasting. In in the case of boys and girls once again it's not really known it's 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 around four boys to every girl there seems to be a kind of idea that because girls tend to advance earlier than boys uh that that boys kind of in that lag developmental lag when uh understanding of speech is forming they they start to stutter at that moment but but it's still speculative you said neurological with some emphasis and yet there's still debate whether we're talking about something which is essentially neurological or psychological there's not much debate now. So the Freudian um, psychological interp- uh, understanding of stuttering, which dominated through the 20th century, really up until the 1980s, um, uh, and and what changed was that when um, we were able to start doing scans of brains, um, brain scanning, it, it began to be evident that there was something different going on in the brains of people people who stutter. So it's now believed to be uh, primary, pr- primarily neurological, but with a kind of psychological element to it. And it turns out it's an hereditary condition. Your mum stuttered. My mum stuttered, uh, um, indeed, and uh, I'm also married into a family of stutterers. Uh, my wife stutters and her father and, and brother. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's a strong genetic element to it. How did you feel about your mum writing about you for The Guardian and uh, with headlines like Anne Woodham on her family's battle against a stuttering blight? What? <laughs> she's in Sydney, so she'll be listening. So um, I shouldn't say anything to... Uh, um, but, um, uh, yeah, I think as a teenager, um, I, uh, I, I was deeply self-conscious about stuttering and uh, so f- feeling that it was in the public eye a bit as well probably added to some discomfort. I'm pleased to see and had no idea that Michael Palin has given his name and presumably generous funding to the Michael Palin Centre for Stammering Children, which you have attended. I did attend it. I was one of the very first. So the Michael Palin Centre for Stuttering Children emerged in the mid-80s in London. It was a very um, progressive 
um, uh, approached to therapy. They took a holistic view. They they insisted um, the stutterer's parents and siblings came in, and I was one of the, the very first cohort to to go through it in the mid eighties, and it, it it changed my life. You cross reference to Tourette's. Yes, I do. So uh, in the book, I um, I don't look at stuttering in isolation. I look at stuttering in relationship to other speech disorders, in- including Tourette's, including aphasia and dysarthria. Uh, and I look at it in relation to fluent speech as well. There are a, a sort of number of, of parallels between stuttering and, and Tourette's in, in that they're both now understood to be neurological conditions they're both affected by dopamine levels uh, and there's some crossover as well in the number of people who have stutters as well as having Tourette's. Echolalia which is repetition of one's own or others words or phrases. Patalalia what's that? That's um, uh, sort of noises so it's um, uh, it's more sort of grunts and, and, and noises and then the famous one is coprolalia which is swearing and that's the one that everyone associates with Tourette's. We're having this discussion in an era when what you call hyperfluency is a form of social currency I suppose uh, exaggerated or exaggerated by social media. Yes, social media has played a um, social media is a, a kind of form of communication that asks us to to speak the whole time, either in what we're typing or in TikTok videos. Um, and for a kind of YouTube gener- uh, generation, that idea that um, you can, by speaking just very fluently in your own bedroom, build a huge uh, multi-million dollar um, business has kind of changed the parameters of where of where formal speech begins and and informal speech begins so that that idea that what we're used to is that at home we're one version of ourselves and we go into work and we're another version and talk in a particular way but uh, this idea that we're always on uh, broadcast mode you know from our bedrooms the whole time has blurred those boundaries um, and and put an emphasis on fluency and uh, and speech at the heart of every day of every aspect of everyday life now there's a paradox among the many paradoxes in your book that people with speech disfluency can be brilliant at finding workarounds so they can often end up with a greater vocabulary. Yeah, and I wouldn't say it's an occasional thing. I'd say it's the general rule. So... um you, that kid who you may who, who who may have been at your school who struggled with uh, speech disorder struggled with stuttering um, what happens is if you have a stutter you develop a very versatile use of language because your brain is constantly thinking ahead uh, looking for words you can substitute problematic words with um, we talk so into the synonym that's easier to handle. Exactly. And so you end up having two conversations going in your head at uh, any time. Uh, And so people who stutter often have very, very large vocabularies (laughs) by necessity. They're very uh, versatile in terms of of synonyms and and finding other ways of speaking. Doesn't also involve a momentary silence while you prepare to speak? Yes, but we're... uh, 
you may have noticed, but as a, as a society, we're very uncomfortable w- uh, with silence. So we find it very uncomfortable when there are pauses in conversations and we find it very uncomfortable when somebody stutters for that reason. So um, for a lot of people with stutters, there's a lot of emphasis on trying to fill those gaps um, as well. So those pauses or silences you describe can be very, very brief. I'd like to talk about one of my all-time heroes in Charles Dodson, please. Yes, so uh, Charles Dodson, or uh, known to the world more broadly as um, Lewis Carroll, um, had a very severe stutter, um, and um, it's very rarely been talked about. Um, uh, So there's a lot of interest in Charles Dodgson's interest in little girls and uh, to what extent that informed his work. But very little attention has been paid to the thing which he actually writes about a lot, which is his stutter. He had a very bad stutter as a child and he had it right up until the day he died. In fact, one of his last letters is a letter to a friend in which he laments the stutter that is, um, this has tormented his, his life. Charles Dodgson, uh, Lewis Carroll, when he was a young man, it was so problematic for him. He went on uh, what is what arguably one of the first, if not the first, group therapy uh, residencies. Um, there was a speech therapist called James Hunt who established a residency for stutterers in, in a town called Hastings on the south coast of England. And Lewis Carroll went there and he stayed with a number of other, you know, frock-coated, top-hat-wearing gentlemen who uh, were given a number of tasks to do every day. They had to practice um, uh, giving speeches to one another. The fascinating thing about that group, that cohort he was on, uh, included not just Lewis Carroll, but two of the other great fancy pioneers. So Charles Kingsley, who wrote The Water Babies, was in that group, as was George MacDonald, who wrote The Princess and the Goblin. So something seems to have happened in this Hastings residency where Charles Dodgson and these other writers embark on a form of literary creation, which we now understand to be fancy, and it seems to derive to some extent from their experience of stuttering. Well, the the people you cite, of course, use words quite imagined, well, more than merely in an imaginative way, but magically. Yeah, so one ex- um, Lewis Carroll is, is a great user of uh, what are called portmanteau words, which are when two two or more words are crushed together. The it, it's it's actually a symptom of stuttering or cluttering, which is another type of speech disorder. That in your haste to get words out, you compress them together. And what Lewis Carroll is, does is he takes that experience of. Um, uh, stuttering words together and creates words which have now entered the English language. So chortle is a Lewis Carroll invention that's past, part um, part chuckle and part snort and galumphing, <laughs> which is uh, part gallop and part triumphant. Let's look at other of the good and the great. Henry James is on your list, as is Somerset Maugham. Yeah, Henry James never admitted he had a stutter, unlike Lewis Carroll, but he did. And it's uh, remarked upon by a number of people who who know him. He was, uh, as an adult, he was an interiorised stutterer, which means he was constructing his entire speech patterns around um, uh, concealing it. I might, just very quickly, if it's all right, read um, Virginia Woolf's very cruel... um, uh, um, 
account of an encounter with him. She wasn't a very pleasant person, Virginia Woolf. And she wrote down her... Um, uh, after meeting him, she she described how he spoke. And, and, and she writes, quoting Henry James, My dear Virginia, they tell me, they tell me, they tell me that you, as indeed being your father's daughter, nay, your grandfather's grandchild, the descendant, I may say, of a century of a century of quills, pens and ink, ink, <laughs> ink pots. Yes, yes, yes. They tell me um, that you, that you, that you write in short. Now, for Virginia Woolf, this is a great joke, but what he's actually doing there is constructing these very long sentences to avoid st- stuttering on problematic words. But sometimes stutterers aren't very kind to their ilk. Let's look at Somerset Maugham who conceded that stammering was an influence in his own life, but never had a stammering character. No, Somerset Maugham never has a stammering uh, character. The closest um, is uh, in um, Stephen in Of Human Bondage, which is his most autobiographical book. He gives a, um, a limp to, and so he equates the limp with the stutter. But certainly Somerset Maugham was great friends with Arnold Bennett, um, who also had a very severe stutter, and they agreed to stop seeing one another at a certain point because they felt that the idea of two men stuttering together was too ridiculous. So they they, they sort of ended their their um, uh, their friendship. Um, You've had your own radical therapy as an adult when you attended a course for interiorised stammering. Tell us what you had to do. Yeah, I, in my early 30s, my speech had become very problematic for me. So I signed up for a, um, an evening uh, speech therapy course in, in London. And when I was a kid, the, the approach to speech therapy was all about concealing your stutter through developing um, particular ways of speaking. This was a very different approach. And we were told fairly soon into the course that we needed to uh, essentially do exposure therapy. And so one night, and it was the most terrifying night of my life, I was sent out with somebody else from the course. And we were sent down to Hoban Tube Station. And our task was to stand outside ask people for directions. And when we did, we, we had to look them in the eye and fake a stutter. So, so I would stop somebody and say, excuse me, can you tell me the way to Covent Garden? And it was, uh, since my biggest fear in life was stuttering, the idea of having to do it and very importantly maintain eye contact uh, was completely terrifying. Um, and we had to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it until we ceased to feel th- th- that terror about it. Jonty, some years ago, we did a programme which finished up being one of the most controversial in the 30-plus years I've been sitting here. And it was on the issue of deaf pride. And it was a group of people who regarded attempts to overcome deafness with, say, cochlear implants as a form of cultural genocide. Now, there's a sort of an echo of that, isn't there, in that some people who stutter now don't believe or argue that stuttering should be treated. That's right. So, And it's very much inspired by um, deaf activism. But there's, there's now what's called a stuttering pride movement. It's very big in America it's got very big in the UK. It's not very big here yet. 
but um, a number of people in the Stuttering Pride movement believe that any form of speech therapy um, is a form of uh, oppression uh, um, and therefore are against speech therapy. That, in the same way, has become very, very controversial when it gets to the um, area of speech therapy for children because those people would say that even speech therapy for children um, is a form of um, uh, oppression that's forcing them to develop a complex about their speech. So it's a very controversial s subject, as you can imagine. John, it's a great pleasure and privilege to talk to you. And occasionally I award an interviewee an award, and it's called the Koala Stamp. You have just earned yourself a Koala Stamp for... Uh, writing above and beyond the call of duty. Uh, Johnny Claypole, his book is Words Fail Us in Defence of Deflu Disfluency. I'm sounding most disfluent as I attempt to pronounce it. And it's published by Welcome Collection for Profile Books. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.